Hello, I'm Abram Bannigan. And I'm Joanne Diaz. And this is Poetry for All. In this podcast, we read a poem, discuss it, learn from it, and then read it one more time. And today we will be reading Poem for Wisconsin by Matthew Zapruder. Joanne, would you be willing to read that poem for us? Yes, gladly. Poem for Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, it is snowing on the golden statue of the 1970s television star, whose television house was in Milwaukee, and also on the Comet Cafe, and on the White Museum the famous Spanish architect built with a glass elevator through it, and a room with a button that when you press it makes two wings on the sides of the building more quickly than you might imagine mechanically rise like a clumsy, thoughtful bird, thinking now, I am ready at last to fly over the lake that has many moods, but it will not. And people ask, who are we who see so much evil and try to stop it and fail? And no, we are no longer for no reason worrying the terrible governors are evil, or maybe just mistaken and nothing can stop them, not even the workers who keep working even when it snows on their heads and on the bridge that keeps our cars above the water. For an hour in Northern California today, it snowed and something happened. People turned their beautiful, sparkling, angry faces up. I love this poem. Me too. And I found myself smiling as I read it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, it's funny. It, it has moments of humor several times. And we can talk about those. But I maybe we could just, first of all, say briefly who Matthew Zapruder is. Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, so Matthew Zapruder is the author of five collections of poetry, most recently Father's Day from Copper Canyon in fall 2019, as well as the wonderful book, Why Poetry. And if, if, if nobody gets anything else out of this podcast, they should go read <laughs> that book, Why Poetry. I love that book. He's an editor-at-large at Wave Books, uh, where he edits contemporary poetry and prose and translations. And he recently held the rotating position of editor of the poetry column for the New York Times Magazine. This is what Tony Hoagland has to say about Matthew Zapruder's styles and, style and concerns. And I really love it. He says this, Matthew Zapruder is engaged in an aesthetic enterprise atypical in the beginning of the 21st century, a poetic study of slowness and the orchestration of awareness, which becomes available in the deceleration of time. In Zapruder's poems, a kind of close contemplative attention is trained upon the moment-to-moment environments of self. There's a guy I know who started reading and writing poetry in middle age and even a little later than middle age. And his job is a vice president of a finance company, high stakes position with a lot of trading and a lot of stress. And I asked him what turned him to poetry. And he said, I needed a practice in my life that would slow me down. And poetry, at the very least, is an art of slowing people down. And I think one of the things about this poem that slows you down as a reader is that it lacks punctuation. So maybe we should just talk about what it looks like on the page for those who don't have it in front of them. This is a series of very short lines, often, you know, four words long, and no punctuation. And so (laughs) before we started this episode, you and I were both 
going over how exactly we would read this out loud because there aren't any cues about where a supposed sentence would begin or end, where a clause would begin or end, how to pause, how to read it. And there are several phrases in here which might turn a different way. So are cars on the bridge suspended for an hour? Or is that hour related to the snowfall in California? It doesn't really tell us because there is no punctuation. And that kind of thing is happening throughout this poem. And I love that. It's a very long, narrow column of text, and there's a lot of sort of open space around it. And as you say, that lack of punctuation contributes to that feeling of openness, of lightness, of that feeling that because you don't have those signposts of traditional punctuation, you need to figure out where those pauses might fall on your own. So it actually activates you as a reader in a really interesting way. Yeah, and the reader has to really look at the words to figure out, you know, in some cases, is this a verb or is this a noun and so forth. And and I, I love that because what he himself says about poetry is that it is precisely the kind of art form that asks you to slow down and look in particular at the words themselves. So one thing he says, for example, is this, the energy of poetry comes primarily from the reanimation and reactivation of the language that we recognize and know. So in other words, he's not trying to use strange language. He's not trying to use unfamiliar words. He's trying to use the words that we know and use every day, but he's putting them and arranging them in such a way that we have to actually look at them and see them and pay attention to them. Okay, that's useful for several reasons. As I hear you talking, I'm thinking about the accessibility of this language. I feel like I can access everything that's here. And there's a way in which in this book, Sun Bear, a lot of the poems in this book look like this one, like with these short lines, these long columns of text, a resistance to using standard punctuation. And also, I love the, the title of the poem, Poem for Wisconsin. It actually is very similar to a lot of the other titles in this book, Poem for England, Poem for Japan, <laughs> Poem for a Coin, Poem for Massachusetts. That's great. And it shows some of what you're saying about attention, the title announcing that it's going to provide a framework so that you can get into this poem with very little difficulty, but where it takes you is what's really exciting. And just to address that poem for Wisconsin thing, and we should get into the content of this poem a little too, but I think it's the kind of poem that Wisconsinites would recognize themselves in. And I think that's particularly important. I once had somebody say to me, if you're going to critique or explore or investigate or respond to somebody's work, you better describe their work in such a way that they would recognize and assent to it before you sort of critique it. And here, I think there's such a way that he's describing the snowfall, the day, the workers, the museum, the lake, that a person, I, I'm from the Midwest, I, I grew up around Lake Michigan, I just... I know this winter. <laughs> I know this scene, right? I, I, I'm not from Wisconsin, but I, I'm from near Wisconsin, and I could just see myself in this scene and know exactly what he's talking about. I am not from the Midwest. <laughs> no, your your accent surely is... Uh... <laughs> yes, yes. If, if, if my accent hasn't taught anyone that already, let's be clear, I am not from this place. I found myself in this place, and here we are. But what's beautiful is the best poems can speak, as you say, to particular cultural or geographical or chronological markers. But this poem actually speaks to me 
on a lot of levels, even if I'm not familiar with Milwaukee or Wisconsin. So maybe we can get into the poem to show how it does that. So let's just begin at the beginning. In Milwaukee, it is snowing on the golden statue of the 1970s television star whose television house was in Milwaukee. I am smiling again as I read it. <laughs> I just love television star. When you read that, you're like, okay, yeah, it's a television. It's it's Arthur Fonzarelli from Happy Days, which was a very, very popular the sitcom. The Fonz. Hey, uh, from the 1970s and 80s. I think I dressed as the Fonz once for Halloween as a child. There so you that go. That uh, gives you a sense of things. So that's fine. But then he writes, whose television house was in Milwaukee. And I love that because, of course, it was a sitcom in the 70s and 80s. And it was on a TV set. You know, it was in a, it was filmed in a studio. That, and it takes place this in this fictive world of Milwaukee. But it wasn't really. It's the same world as Laverne and Shirley, which became a spinoff show as well from, from Happy Days. But it's capturing the 19... 19- 70s show that was about 1950s life in the Midwest, which is very interesting to me. So already I'm taken on this journey just in these first five or six lines that just amazing. And it's shot in California. One of the things I find interesting about this poem and love about it is that it feels like a, just a, an association of ideas and thoughts, a kind of free flow of information through the mind. And yet there is actually structure and form to it, and there's a kind of envelope structure to it. So we start in Milwaukee with references to California, and we end in California with references to Milwaukee. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> there, is, there is a way in which this poem is built very carefully to associate these very strange places with each other. And it's the strangeness of that association which I think ends up becoming, an, in a certain sense, the point of the poem. This isn't a poem of either or. He isn't making choices. He's including all of it. So look at what he does right after that allusion to Arthur Fonzarelli in Happy Days. He he refers to the television house that was in Milwaukee. And also, so the snow is also falling on the Comet Cafe and on the White Museum, the famous Spanish architect built with a glass elevator through it and a room with a button that when you press it makes two wings on the sides of the building more quickly than you might imagine. Mechanically rise like a clumsy, thoughtful bird, thinking now I am ready at last to fly over the lake that has many moods, but it will not. Oh my, that's a, now that's not a sentence per se. I'll call it a unit of thought, but that's a big layered unit of thought. What's happening there? Yeah, well, just as you were emphasizing there, I mean, I think it's worth pointing out that and is probably the most prominent and repeated word in this poem. So that that sense of additional layers upon layers upon layers. And the museum, the image of this museum is is like a layer upon a layer upon a layer. It is an art museum with art in it that is itself a piece of art sitting on this lake. For anyone who has not seen the Milwaukee Art Museum, it is worth just going and looking at YouTube and images. And it is literally, he is not making um, metaphors here. (laughs) It is a building with wings that rise and you push a button and they mechanically rise. And it is extraordinary. It's absolutely extraordinary. It looks like a bird crouched and ready to take off across the lake. But of course, it's a building, so it never quite does that. It just sits there 
day after day, getting ready to take flight. Again, as you describe this, I'm smiling. Like, I, I, I'm not even looking at anyone right now. I'm just smiling. <laughs> because I think the reason I'm smiling is because this architect, Santiago Calatrava, I love how playful he is. I love that there's a, a whimsy and a playfulness. There is no reason why a museum needs to have wings that actually grow and rise from the building. But I love that it's a museum of art that is itself an art object and transforms the landscape of Milwaukee and the lake every single day. Isn't that wonderful? It's such a gift. Yes. And I think that, and we'll come back to this point, but I think that seeing that extraordinary museum is part of what is the transformation happening in the middle of this poem. Because if you live in Milwaukee and see that museum every day, you might fail to recognize just how extraordinary it is. It becomes so familiar that in a certain sense, you cease to see it. And that relates back to that first line, which then translates to the last line. So the first line, in Milwaukee, it is snowing. Nothing could be more common (laughs) than for it to be snowing in Milwaukee. This is a line that announces the familiar in the most familiar terms. And so it's almost as though we completely pass this by. But as we'll see by the end of the poem, through walking through this museum, through all the other things that we're about to see, what we begin to see is how much we ought to notice these things, that that snow itself is extraordinary, (laughs) that when it snows, even in Milwaukee, it might be worth your pausing and paying attention. That's very nice. I like that. And I like, too, that this is the first moment in the poem where Zapruder establishes a limit, right? So he says, you know, well, first of all, we haven't even talked about really the personification, the voice that he gives to the Museum of Art. You know, the the museum is thinking now, I am ready at last to fly over the lake that has many moods but it will not. <laughs> so, you know, it's not going to really happen. And and so he keeps that museum grounded. And there's something very sobering about that, which then helps us get to the next shift in the poem. I am obsessed with the idea of wonder in poetry and the wonder that's in this poem itself. But the other important point here, exactly as you say, is the limits to that wonder, the groundedness of it, the the, the places where it does not take off. And, and those being in themselves places where we need to pay attention. And so we move from this museum that keeps trying to rise and take flight but never gets off the ground to suddenly a very different discussion. The people who keep asking, who are we who see so much evil and try to stop it and fail? And no, we are no longer for no reason worrying the terrible governors are evil or maybe just mistaken and nothing can stop them. In other words... This used to really concern us, the, the things the governors are doing, the evil we see around us. There was a point in time when we really paid attention to that, but we've gotten so used to it that we just go about our lives now without even paying attention to it anymore. And that's a very different sense of not paying attention to that than it is to say not paying attention to this museum or to the fact of snow or to something wondrous. There are two very different ends of this spectrum that people are no longer paying attention to because they're too familiar with it. Okay, yeah, this is kind of a clipped wings image. If those wings on the museum imagine, give us a sense of wonder and awe and soaring, or at least the possibility of soaring, these lines do not. And I, I read the lines a little bit differently than you do because I see that the people ask. So that feels like that's in the present tense. 
The people ask, who are we who see so much evil and try to stop it and fail? So it feels like it's a continual concern. It certainly has happened in the past, but probably it's still in the present as well. And this feels very historically specific. And uh, this is where the poem shifts into a terrain that really interests me a lot, because this is not about wonder anymore, but it's about real disappointment in political systems. So the poem is speaking to a moment in Wisconsin history where there was a governor who really challenged some ideas about the rights of ordinary workers and curtailed a lot of union bargaining power and negotiating power. And so all of a sudden, these workers who appear in in this poem are very interesting to me. Nothing can seem to stop the terrible governors from doing terrible things, not even the workers who keep working, even when it snows on their heads and on the bridge that keeps our cars above the water. That's very interesting. So that even if their government has disappointed them, even if their government is not protecting them, they keep working. I was reading a review of, of Matthew Pruder's work, and there was this great line in it that said this, which I think gets at the two dynamics we're discussing here. So we, the, the kind of gist of a lot of this poetry that, that he writes is, we are in this world, and this world is magical, and the world continues to disappoint us. And so these, these workers, now the snow has become something else. Now it's, it's sort of almost um, not magical, but oppressive. It continues to snow on these workers working who keep working, even when their rights are being taken away. That's amazing. And then he picks up on that in a very interesting way. And here we go again with the connective tissue of the poem. The final gesture is just, it's marvelous. And it brings us back to wonder, even in the midst of frustration and anger. Look what that final gesture is. For an hour in Northern California, today it snowed and something happened. People turned their beautiful, sparkling, angry faces up. I love this ending. I think this is why I wanted to talk about this poem so much. I I just think about it all the time. I love it. So first of all, I think it is worth noting that there are three adjectives here and all of them matter. Beautiful, sparkling, and angry. They're beautiful, sparkling, angry faces up. What sense do you make of that, that there are three adjectives, all of them matter, and they're very different? I'm trying to think about the poem as a whole. It is very conservative in its use of adjectives, and I kind of love that. It's a very accessible language. It's very spare. It's, there is nothing that is there that is in excess. It's a very disciplined poem, very controlled, so that when I see three adjectives in a row, it, it makes me pay so much attention to them. We, we, we've talked about the role of wonder in here and, and the sparkling. I mean, it, it, it ties that wonder of the, of the beauty of these people in this place to the snow itself, which is sparkling down on it. But then this twist, right, this turn, this is not just beautiful. It's not just sparkling. We haven't just sort of had this wonderful overflow of emotions. Right? We aren't just lost in rapture. It's also, they're also angry. And there are things legitimately to be angry about. And all of that has to be included. It can't just be one emotion or the other. All of those emotions together. And yet what's happening in those last words, they turn their faces up, is that all of it is given a moment of pause and, in a certain sense, a moment of recognition 
through this unfamiliar snow that has come to California? This is actually very helpful for me because I think what I'm starting to understand is that he's capturing the precise moment at which poetry begins. And here's what I mean by that. Quite often, when I feel moved to write a poem, it's because I've had a sensory experience that jars me completely out of whatever I'm feeling. So these people who are in California, and they're angry, and they look up, whatever's inside their mind or heart is completely juxtaposed with the beauty and surprise of the situation. And it's that surprise that I think is, is making something really energetic happen at the end of the poem. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And I don't think it's an accident that the snow appears three times in the poem and we get three adjectives to describe these people. In Milwaukee, it is snowing. It snows on the workers' heads and it snows for an hour in California. And you could almost sort of align beautiful, sparkling and angry with these different moments. And there's a way in which the snow is tying it all together. With that in mind, would you be willing to read the poem again just so we can kind of think about all of these things? Absolutely. Poem for Wisconsin. In Milwaukee, it is snowing. On the golden statue of the 1970s television star whose television house was in Milwaukee. And also on the Comet Cafe and on the White Museum, the famous Spanish architect built with a glass elevator through it, and a room with a button that when you press it makes two wings on the sides of the building more quickly than you might imagine mechanically rise like a clumsy, thoughtful bird, thinking, now I am ready at last to fly over the lake that has many moods, but it will not. And people ask, who are we? who see so much evil and try to stop it and fail and know we are no longer for no reason worrying the terrible governors are evil or maybe just mistaken and nothing can stop them, not even the workers who keep working even when it snows on their heads and on the bridge that keeps our cars above the water. For an hour in Northern California today, it snowed and something happened. People turned their beautiful, sparkling, angry faces up. Thank you for reading that again, and thank you all for listening. You can download Poetry for All and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We also hope that you will follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And thank you to Copper Canyon for permission to read this poem.